He travels the world and scans the web to keep you up to date on the latest threats to the internet and to your cybersecurity. He brings you the latest on the fight against cyber terrorism, keeping you safe with the best cybersecurity information on the radio. It's Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Good morning and welcome to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host John Bambanek broadcasting out of AM 820 News covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast as well as AM 1060 News covering the Space Coast and Orlando. You can connect with us online at cybersecuritytodayradio.com, on Facebook and Twitter at CybersecRadio. My personal Twitter account is at Bambanek. Uh, and of course, you can always email us at johnbambanekradio at gmail.com, J-O-H-N-B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K radio at gmail.com. Uh, we do take your questions for our social media segment, which we're actually going to have here in a little bit, for what you want to know about cybersecurity, how you can protect yourself, your family, anything that you uh, see out there that you're curious about. Uh, we're happy to take your questions. So I wanted to uh, start this segment uh, talking about medical device security. Uh, one, some research into a recent an incident that covers it says many of you uh, all of you have probably been to a hospital or a doctor's office at some point uh, many of us are older to remember the, you know a lot of things they were doing you know were manual uh, or standalone devices now most of the equipment uh, is connected uh, to hospital networks and by extension the internet they have full operating systems built in there so when you take your kid or yourself to get an x-ray for a broken bone uh, the medical imaging device, you know, is storing the image electronically so that it can be shared and convenient for uh, to, to coordinate your health care, which is a good thing. But those devices basically have the same kind of computers, uh, same kind of operating systems that your laptop or your home devices have uh, in Microsoft Windows, maybe something else. Uh, and they need to be updated and they need to be patched for uh, vulnerabilities as they come up. The problem that we really, there's actually a lot of problems that came up with this, and, and this goes into research uh, recently published by Ben-Gurion University in Israel about specifically medical imaging devices like uh, CT scanners, x-rays, MRIs, but really it applies to a lot of different medical technologies that, you know, there's various reasons that we, you know, plug the computers into these things and attach them, you know, it could be sharing medical records, uh, EMR uh, is the acronym that they use, or EHR, electronic medical or electronic health records, uh, to coordinate care. Uh, and those, like I said, it's, it makes health care and the provision of health care uh, a lot easier. Uh, and uh, that's a good thing. Uh, the consequence is, is, you know, if you think of an MRI machine, or a CAT scanner or an X-ray. I mean, these are devices that are expensive and should last decades. Uh, you know, so think about a laptop you've had that's 10 years old running Windows XP probably at this point is just by definition insecure and you've got to get rid of it. Uh, and that's a problem that we really didn't accommodate with uh, the move to electronic uh, or computer-enabled healthcare devices. Uh, and that's created some uh, vulnerabilities that we've seen exploited recently going back to WannaCry, the ransomware outbreak that happened earlier last year, uh, specifically uh, shut down portions of the National Health Service in the United Kingdom because the Windows vulnerability also affected their medical devices. Now, in that, in that case, the devices just didn't work or were non-operational because uh, the underlying operating system was, uh, in essence, broken. Uh, but certainly there's a lot of possibilities if somebody wanted to be more discreet and nefarious, you know, could you create a, a computer virus that says, oh, this is an MRI machine. I'm going to 
uh, try to remove or add tumors uh, into the imaging, you know, to, you know, either unnecessarily get people cancer care or, uh, you know, have people who really need the care not get it. Uh, we haven't seen any attacks like that, but those exist as theoretical possibilities. So some of the uh, difficulties there, right? For for WannaCry, there was a patch available. There were settings you could put on your operating system, and that was talked about by the U.S. Computer Emergency Response Team uh, months before WannaCry happened. With medical devices, they're highly regulated, you know, and, and for good reason, right? These are devices that, in essence, support life or death decisions in many cases, may, may be keeping you alive if you're talking about a respirator. It's very important for these devices to be working correctly, be tested, be secure, so on and so forth. So when you uh, have necessary security updates or configuration changes that need to be made, it's very expensive and time-consuming to basically go back to the Food and Drug Administration and say, oh, by the way, we need you to retest this machine to ensure that it's safe after we apply the latest updates that you see every month from Microsoft, for instance. Uh, so. Uh, that is something that we have not really effectively addressed or accommodated, and the result is things like WannaCry can happen, where there were patches, there were possibilities out there uh, for securing these devices, but because it's so difficult in a regulatory way to uh, recertify all of that stuff for patching the underlying operating system, that uh, in many cases it wasn't done. So uh, we're facing a lot of problems that we, we can solve, right, if it, we're talking about a conventional computer. But with a regulatory environment, uh, we're facing some real struggles in medical technology that has a lot of people concerned precisely because these devices do uh, make life or death decisions. So that's kind of the theoretical academic research, right? There's vulnerabilities out there, right? This research from an Israeli university saying, you know, uh, that that can be exploited for a lot of nefarious reasons uh, just in medical imaging devices. Uh, certainly that's true for other devices as well. But uh, that's related to another story uh, that we've seen. Uh, it was last week, I think, when it started breaking, is that a medical support company called Allscripts uh, was hit with a ransomware outbreak that disabled their ability to uh, process prescriptions for people. So uh, when you go to the doctor's office, uh, many of them will uh, use uh, you know an electronic uh, application that sends your prescription to whatever uh, pharmacy that you want to use. Odds are that that's Allscripts. So the disruption here is this company uh, you know, is responsible when you go to the doctor and get medicine, right? They make sure the pharmacy gets that information. You know, nobody writes out prescriptions on paper anymore, except in very rare circumstances. Uh, there, they were hit with ransomware, specifically a ransomware known as SamSam, uh, that's been around for a, a little over a year and a half, uh, give or take, uh, maybe a little bit longer than that, and. All of their clients uh, were affected by this in terms of they weren't able to process uh, their ability to prescribe medication and some other services that they use. So your doctor's office was fine, but this medical support company prohibited their ability to process prescriptions. So a lot of disruption, and you could, you could just imagine how disruptive this would be for your life, you know, if you're going to the doctor's office to get a refill of medication or whatever. I mean, you're there because you need the medicine. Uh, so uh, the doctor can't, in effect, prescribe it to you. I, I don't know how many doctors accommodated this problem. I mean, it was fixed uh, within a day, I think. 
um, but still, right, highly disruptive based on uh, something that many of us don't really consider, right? You know, we go to the doctor, we get a prescription, we like not having to carry pieces of paper around with us anymore uh, and, and forgot about it. But this one company got hit with ransomware. Uh, the criminals behind this have made hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, over the past year and a half uh, doing ransoms and a critical component of our healthcare system was crippled. I said, uh, you know, a little bit less than a day, I believe, but still pretty significant, right? And it irritated a whole lot of people. It irritated a whole lot of doctors who are not necessarily uh, fans of the uh, movement of making everything digital and electronic in the healthcare environment. Uh, and, uh, you know, lawsuits uh, have been filed due to the disruption for failure to protect and uh, all of those kind of things. So this is the kind of impacts that we can see to our healthcare system and have seen uh, elsewhere in the world uh, based on just commodity malware, right? SamSam Sam is, is a known threat, right? We've got antivirus signatures and all of that for it. Uh, and certainly there were things probably all scripts could have done uh, but that's the kind of disruption we can see, and those are the kind of threats that a lot of things that we take for granted, right? Our ability to go to a doctor's office and get an x-ray and say, okay, that's broken, here's your cast, or go to the doctor's office and, oh, you've got an ear, func ear infection, here's your amoxicillin or whatever they prescribe for that these days, and it just works. Uh, but some commodity threats that we face to our computers, right, that we see every day have real significant impacts to how healthcare works. And we'll be right back after this short break. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Listening to John Bambanek, the most trusted name in cybersecurity. Welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. We've got our social media segment here coming up. If you want to ask us questions that we can answer on future shows, uh, you can email me at johnbambanekradio at gmail.com, J O H N B A M B E N E K, radio at gmail.com, on Facebook and Twitter at CyberSec Radio, or my personal Twitter account at Bambanek, B A M B E N E K, and of course via our website, cybersecuritytodayradio.com. Uh, the first question up, it seems like uh, very few women work in cybersecurity. Is that true? And what can be done uh, to change that? Uh, I think generally, right, with IT fields, uh, you know, women are uh, very underrepresented. Uh, and certainly that's true in cybersecurity specifically, but it is a tech sector wide uh, phenomenon. Uh, you know, there are there are some women who work in the field, but uh, obviously, you know, it's not it's not 50 50 by any stretch of, of the imagination. I'm in Austin this week at a conference uh, and most of the attendees uh, are male and most of my colleagues are, like I said, there are women here, but uh, certainly not a statistically representative portion. Uh, why that is, is uh, 
to be honest, I don't know how qualified I am to, to say that one way or the other. Uh, you know, many women I've talked to have, have felt various problems uh, breaking into the field or getting the respect they think they deserve for their work. Uh, many face, you know, various forms of being looked down upon or uh, treated not as a serious technology professional just because they're a, wo a woman. Uh, so certainly there are aspects of that and, uh, you know, certainly uh, in, in certain company environments uh, that plays out in uh, particularly toxic ways. Uh, what can be done to change it? Um, you know, that's a very interesting question that lots of people uh, are struggling with. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, avoiding situations that lead to the Me Too phenomenon. There's been uh, several uh, relatively high-profile incidents with, well, I don't know about high-profile, high at least in the cybersecurity industry anyway, of, of professionals who are using their, their status as being prominent uh, cybersecurity researchers or whatever to take advantage of women. Uh, certainly making sure that that doesn't happen and things are, are put in place to prevent or respond to it. I know a lot of conferences are putting in codes of conduct to explicitly say that kind of behavior is not being tolerated, but I think... Uh, you know, first and foremost is, you know, uh, for those who work in the field and those who manage people or are in leadership is, you know, doing things to welcome contributions from anybody, you know, treat people based on, on their accomplish, uh, accomplishments and abilities, uh, not, uh, you know, on their gender or uh, other characteristics that don't have anything to do with it. In short, you know, people consciously taking steps to be not part of the problem and, uh, trying to take steps to welcome others in. I know there's a, a, a student uh, of mine, a former student of mine, and, and one of her comments was is how she got uh, uh, others who reached out to her specifically say, hey, you should go talk at this event. You should participate. Uh, she didn't really think she had anything worthwhile to say, but you know, was welcomed in, you know, talk got accepted, very well received. I mean, she's an, an intelligent, capable uh, professional. And, uh, you know, those kind of steps helped her, uh, you know, take the next steps in her career uh, to where, uh, you know, she's enjoying what she's doing. She's, she's getting the respect from her peers. So I think uh, things of that sort uh, are helpful. And certainly just in cybersecurity generally, you know, mentoring the next generation and people who want to learn. There's lots of people interested in this. Uh, you know, and those who've been in it for a while should take steps to help the people who want to get into it and, and, you know, how they can build up themselves, their capability and skills as well. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the social media segment here at Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bamanek. Second question is, are there any cybersecurity concerns with the release of the Nunes memo? Uh, I'm sure many of you heard, uh, at least those that follow politics, uh, the House uh, Select Committee on Intelligence uh, released a memo about uh, how the FBI handled uh, various investigations leading up to the 2016 election. There's lots of controversy about uh, its release, uh, whether it should have or should or should not have been released. Uh, there's a statement from the FBI saying, you know, there are other uh, things that aren't being released that might change the conclusions being made. Uh, as far as the politics of it, you know, you, you can look uh, for yourself. But the cybersecurity concerns generally is I, I don't think so. Uh, they do talk about uh, things that were classified as part of, uh, in essence, a uh, national security related investigation with uh, Hillary Clinton's email server and some other things. So uh, I don't know if there's cybersecurity concerns generally uh, beyond the typical concerns that you know are voiced when you're talking about classified information in a public setting that 
there could be compromise of sources and methods and uh, this could lead to criminals and spies changing their behavior so that they are more likely to evade detection uh, by authorities. So I don't know if there's any cybersecurity concerns proper uh, beyond beyond those. So our last question here, I saw a report at, uh, that Google deleted hundreds of thousands of malicious mobile applications uh, from you know, the Google Play Store. How can I protect myself uh, from something uh, being downloaded that's malicious? And uh, what about uh, things from the Apple Store? So uh, a lot of tentacles to that, but uh, the story itself involves uh, the fact that many uh, Google has taken great pains to try to minimize the amount of malicious mobile applications there are on their platform and uh, over the past year have banned uh, you know, 100,000 developers, deleted 700,000 apps. You can read the, the specifics of that uh, in uh, an article at our digital partner, cyberscoop.com. So um, if you're looking for malicious mobile applications, many of them want the Christmas tree of permissions. So when you install an application on Android, it says this application wants this permission, that permission. So look for things that just don't make a lot of sense. If you're playing plants, Plants vs. Zombies, right, is a favorite of one of my kids. It doesn't need to listen to your microphone or access your text messages or see your call log. Uh, malicious application will try to embed and steal as much information from you as possible. So look for that in the permissions that it tries to install. Uh, one class of applications that hasn't uh, we haven't really made a dent in is just information-stealing applications. The apps work. They're functional. But when they communicate out to a web server, that web server then steals login credentials, various information, and then uses that against you. Uh, there's really no good automated technique right now uh, to find those applications. So uh, if you're looking to download an official app for your financial institution or whatever, uh, certainly make sure, take a look at those publisher details, make sure that it's actually the official application uh, and pay attention to uh, just the details. Uh, for Apple, because of the way Apple is done and it highly restricts how applications can communicate to other applications, uh, it's a less flexible platform, uh, but it's a little bit more secure. So uh, it, it's really hard to create comprehensive malware uh, with the Apple ecosystem. Uh, you know, certainly in the Apple Play Store has had malware in the past. They've taken similar action. So that's a wrap for our social media segment. Again, if you have any other questions that you'd like to know about cybersecurity, do reach out and get in touch with us so that we can answer that on a future show. Now we're going to take a short break in here, uh, talk about some more news, and then bring on our digital partner, cyberscoop.com with Greg Otto, have an interview of some things that he's working on. So stay tuned for that. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Scan your computer, but don't scan the dial. Stay right here. John Bambadek will be right back. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. 
wanted to cover a quick little story uh, because it's got some interesting implications and certainly people are talking about it. Uh, recently, the NSA awarded uh, two, uh, the second of three uh classified contracts to provide IT services to the intelligence community, to that agency as part of uh, what do they call the groundbreaker program. So about uh, $2 billion was awarded to AT&T. That uh, was subject to some bid disputes that have been resolved. So now AT&T can start doing work on that project and claim that $2 billion uh, of providing IT services and cybersecurity services uh, to our intelligence community. So certainly, you know, it's a big, it's an eye-popping number. $2 billion is nothing to shake a stick at. Uh, because of the classified nature, we don't know precisely exactly what they're going to do. Uh, but that comes down to uh, some interesting uh, implications that it's had in the past of, of stories that we've seen and we've covered here. Uh, Edward Snowden, for instance, uh, was a contractor with Booz Allen Hamilton, uh, was doing work and uh, absconded with a lot of secrets and is now in Russia. And we're facing some of the consequences of uh, his behavior today. He was a contractor in the intelligence community. Right. There have been several other breaches that have involved uh, not the intelligence community proper, uh, but some of the contractors uh, who have information. Right. Reality. Uh, reality winner. Um, the uh, other contractor who released some uh, classified report on election uh, related uh, cybersecurity issues uh, and what Russia was doing and some of the reporting of the intelligence community. She's facing charges for leaking classified information. Uh, and this has been, I don't know about a recurring problem, but frequent enough where the pattern is in my mind that a lot of our intelligence community outsources work to others. And that has had uh, some security implications in the past and some very high profile ways uh, and stories that we're cover covering, right? There's, uh, we're still uh, waiting on exactly what comes of the shadow brokers uh, leak of the NSA exploits of who is responsible for that. Uh, you know, that may turn out to be a contract or somebody else entirely. Uh, and certainly we've talked about the implications of that with WannaCry and their attacks going on today. They're still using those exploits. So the intelligence community outsourcing a lot of their work uh, to others is, uh, you know, a cause of some, some, some security concern, right? Uh, that's not to say there haven't been, uh, insiders and people within the government themselves, uh, that have been, uh, responsible for some of these, uh, breaches. Uh, Chelsea Manning, uh, then Bradley Manning, uh, was a private, uh, who leaked a lot of diplomatic classified cables to WikiLeaks. Uh, you know, was sentenced to a large uh, term in prison. Uh, President Obama commuted that sentence. Uh, she has now moved back to Maryland, is running for the United States Senate against the uh, current senator, uh, incumbent senator, uh, Ben Cardin. So uh, certainly there have been insiders uh, that have been responsible for some of these breaches. But uh, a lot of the outsourcing of our intelligence community work uh, certainly to a company like AT&T, who has uh, a fair bit of the uh, Internet infrastructure and telephone infrastructure of the country, uh, it certainly caught a lot of people's attentions. Uh, you know, the reality is we don't know precisely the parameters of what they're going to do because that work is, of course, classified. So from there, I wanted to segue into uh, other uh, D.C.-related news, what's going on in Washington, D.C., among our policymakers. So I wanted to bring on uh, our digital partner, Greg Otto from CyberScoop.com. Welcome back to the show, Greg. 
Thanks for having me. All right. So one of the uh, stories out there uh, that at least I found interesting, if for no other reason, my own personal interest in some of the issues I've been tackling, the uh, Trump administration is saying they want a greater role. Uh, the United States wants a greater role in uh, global data privacy uh, protection. Uh, exactly, uh, you know, what uh, what are they suggesting? So the Trump administration, you know, plans to take an increased role in shaping the rules around Internet governments with regards to some actions that were taken by China uh, late last year with uh, their own cybersecurity law and how domestic data centers need to provide confidential records when requested by government officials. And then also talking about, you know, the GDPR and how when that goes into effect in May, um, that is posing uh, new rules on companies mm-hmm. that store European data. So the the U.S. government is reacting now in that they want to make sure that, you know, all of these rules that are coming on the books in various countries across the world don't what don't result in what they call the fragmentation of the Internet so that, you know, we can keep Internet commerce going and that law enforcement can investigate cases as they come up. Oh, I think that, you know, there's, there's a couple of personal interesting aspects to it. I know with GDPR and Internet governance in particular uh, over at ICANN with, with uh, Whois, which, um, you know, for the purpose of listeners, every time you register a domain name like Google.com, you're supposed to put in your name, address, phone number, email address, so people can contact you. Uh, GDPR is saying, hey, you know what, there's privacy issues for that, and uh, that's having an outsized impact because GDPR applies if you have just one European person, and how do you identify whether somebody's a European citizen or a dual citizen, right? Somebody could be living in Orlando, be both a U.S. citizen and a citizen of Germany, and GDPR protects them. Uh, and the result is, you know, in part, what I, what I would say, due to a lack of U.S. leadership pushing back, uh, EU law, uh, they're actually arguing EU law takes precedent over everybody else uh, when it comes to privacy. And, uh, you know, it's certainly leading to some impacts in U.S. companies. Right. And while I think that GDPR and the China's cybersecurity law uh, are important to what uh, Rob Joyce was saying when he talked about these comments earlier this week. I really Mm -hmm. think the big part of this comes from the debate surrounding whether the government should be allowed to use warrants to obtain evidence stored abroad, Mm -hmm. um, even if that evidence get, even if that evidence is tied to a U.S. citizen. Um, This goes back to the Supreme Court case that is going through the motions right now, the U.S. versus Microsoft case, where the U.S. government wants information on a drug dealer, but that information is stored on Microsoft servers in Ireland. Right. So there are a lot of unanswered questions standing in the way of, you know, how that is all going to shape out. But I think this is the White House, you know, kind of lining up their options ahead of whatever the Supreme Court rules. I think, you know, if they rule that the information doesn't have to be turned over, I think that they're going to press hard to try to get legislation enacted where they have some kind of action. If, you know, the U.S. is allowed to do that, I think they're still going to try to find a way to codify it so we're not going to the courts every time the U.S. Department of Justice wants to poke around in a foreign data center for information on a U.S. citizen. Right, and that's, 
you know, it's kind of the core layer of GDPR and what's causing some people heartburn is with GDPR, you can be an American company doing business on the internet, primarily targeting really only Americans and incidentally get a European citizen, right? Now, I mean, the internet, I can buy from anybody in the world or I could be a Euro European citizen just visiting or a dual citizen, right? And then European law applies to me. And, you know, I'm just an American company doing business with Americans. I never had any thought of EU law. It's sort of the corollary is the U.S. is saying, hey, you know, we want data on our citizens on foreign servers, uh, you know, with Microsoft, because technically Microsoft Ireland is another company, even though Microsoft owns it all. The other is interesting aspect, and, and, and what are your thoughts on this, right, is if the U.S. wants this role in, you know, global policymaking and things of that sort, uh, certainly when it comes to how we work with other countries, uh, there used to be a diplomatic post responsible for some sort of the, those those kind of things. Uh, the the office of uh, cyber uh, cyber coordinate uh, cyber issues, the coordinator of cyber issues at the State Department, which was dissolved by uh, Secretary of State Tillerson. So, in essence, you know the the organization that would globally at least negotiate and push for some of those things was already gotten rid of. Need to take a short break here. We're going to keep Greg on here uh, after the break, so stay tuned for that. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Scan your computer, but don't scan the dial. Stay right here. John Bambanek will be right back. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Still with us, Greg Otto from Cyberscoop.com, our digital partner. Uh, so wanted to continue our discussion with him. And what are your thoughts on this, right? Is if the U.S. wants this role in, you know, global policymaking and things of that sort, uh, certainly when it comes to how we work with other countries, uh, there used to be a diplomatic post responsible for some sort of the, those those kind of things. Uh, the the office of uh, cyber uh, cyber coordinate uh, cyber issues, the coordinator of cyber issues at the State Department, which was dissolved by uh, Secretary of State Tillerson. So, in essence, you know, the, the organization that would globally at least negotiate and push for some of those things was already gotten rid of. Right. And, and that's only adding to the problems that, I mean, look, we can, we've been talking about the balkanization of the Internet even mm. prior to the Trump administration. Okay. So, you know, all of these individual companies that are building their own Internet infrastructure and creating their own domestic rules. I mean, it's just becoming, you know, more and more of a problem. The, the, the internet is a global thing, but obviously laws are not global. So this is, you know, a continuing problem that's really getting out of hand, I feel like, with all of these new data privacy laws and data localization laws. I mean, we're getting to a point where everybody's building their walled garden. Data has to be localized and then you know, you look at totalitarian regimes and the data is exploited. So it, it cuts against the core of what, you know, the Internet is supposed to be about. However, then you look at what happened at the State Department, who, you know, who's flying the flag now as far as the government is concerned with what we what the U.S. wants the Internet to represent. So it's kind of like we've cut ourselves off at the knees at a time when we need more support, not less. No, and I think that's certainly true. But, uh, you know, there's there, there's kind of another trend line. And, and what I think kind of started this data localization thing and this chain of events. And, you know, obviously, you know, I don't 
I, I know some people in the federal government. I don't know people that many in China and Russia, and certainly not in those roles. But I think we're dealing, you know, of an undercurrent that was started with the Edward Snowden disclosures of just how much the intelligence community, our our own intelligence community, was uh, scooping up data from everyone everywhere. Uh, and the result is other country says, you know, we can't have that risk anymore. We need to pull back. And, you know, we'd like, you know, some of that that power ourselves. But if you're Russia, you're China, right, you can only oppose it inside your own territorial boundaries without engaging in overt espionage. How much do you think, you know, this is just a, a kind of a natural response to uh, what Edward Stone released uh, out into the world uh, several years ago now? Well, I think that has a lot to do with it. Uh, I mean, all of those disclosures to the way that the the U.S. government operates within the parameters of the Internet have kind of set the tone globally for a lot of what we deal with. But again, I go back to this case that's before the Supreme mm-hmm. Court. I really think that this is the genesis of the comments that we heard this week. I think the the, the government is is kind of spinning its wheels when it comes to this case. And how it applies to mm-hmm. the, you know, the China law and the GDPR. Again, I think that it, with with at least respect to law enforcement, I think that the government is very, very worried that they're going to be shut out from doing um, investigations if the data is stored in data centers that are not within U.S. borders. Right. And, and and certainly it's a problem if somebody does investigations that sort. Can we get to that data eventually? Maybe. It depends on the country. But if you look at companies like Microsoft or, or let's just stay with a Gmail account, right? It's easy to get a Gmail, right. a, a Gmail.ie account or a Gmail. Uh, pick almost any other country on the planet, right? I could be sitting here, you know, in... Uh, you know, in Florida or wherever I happen to be. And you know what? I, I want my email to be in this country, right? And pick and choose countries that just won't comply with U.S. process. So you've got a, somebody in U.S. physically, you know, somebody we can put our hands on to and put a search warrant on and all that kind of stuff using a U.S. company or at least the parent companies in the U.S. Just a couple of clicks of buttons say, you know what? I want my email address to be hosted in Botswana. And there you are, game, set, match. Uh, and it certainly right. would complicate a great number of things. Can we get around it? Yeah, but you know, this, this that whole process of mutual legal assistance treaties (MLATs) right is a very onerous process. You know, where it goes from law enforcement to State Department to foreign, uh, the foreign equivalents, right, to their law enforcement goes through their courts, uh, and, and they have to care, right? You know, and. They're under no obligation to prioritize those requests. So, um, you know, versus the search warrant, we want X, give me X, right? You got to have probable cause or I, I forget the precise legal standard there, right? It can't be a superfluous search warrant, but it's much, 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 much easier than an MLAP. Right. And I, I imagine that it is. And that's, I think, why the government uh, is out there, you know, making sure that they get their opinion out there that mm-hmm. we we don't want to do that. I mean, they will do that if they have to. It's just, you know, they want to make it as easy as possible, and that's just human nature. So I, I, I get where they're coming from in that regard, but uh, again, if I you know, could read the tea leaves, I, I think that they're going to mm-hmm. have to still rely on those MLATs like they do for so many things outside of cybersecurity and, and data investigations. Right. No, and uh, uh, it do you know off the top of your head when the Supreme Court's supposed to rule on that Microsoft case? 
Uh, I think sometime in the spring. I'm not exactly mm-hmm. sure. I would tell your listeners to check out SCOTUS blog. They do yeah. a, a fantastic job covering uh, the the Supreme Court cases. But um, as far as the actual timing of the case, I, I believe sometime in the spring. Okay, sounds good. I wanted to change gears a little bit to uh, another executive order uh, that was passed uh, while we're still on the topic of uh, uh, Washington, D.C. and U.S. cyber policy is uh, the uh, NTIA and their uh, uh, attempts to start tackling botnets, these uh, uh, basically organized criminal campaigns that take over tens or hundreds of thousands of machines and centrally manage them to launch attacks do any kind of nefarious behavior. Uh, so uh, tell us a little bit, of, you know, uh, what is the NTIA and, and what are they doing? So the NTIA is the National Telecommunications and Information Administration. They are a small agency within the U.S. Uh, Commerce Department that uh, deals with addressing a number of complex technological and cybersecurity problems, and they do a lot of policymaking when it comes to that. Going back to our previous conversation about, you know, walled gardens and balkanization of the Internet, they do a lot with what they call the multi-stakeholder process, which is a process of just basically Internet governments. Um, think um, going back to a couple years ago or mm-hmm. the conversation that is still going on about handing over ICANN the control of ICANN to a multi-stakeholder process. That's really, the NTIA has really been the driving force in trying to get ICANN out of U.S. control and passed over to this multi-stakeholder process. Mm -hmm. So now what they are doing when the the White House and uh, President Donald Trump issued the cybersecurity executive order, one part of that uh, one part of that order was taking a look at making the Internet more secure against massive botnet attacks, Think mm-hmm. what happened with Mirai. Uh, and so the NTIA is kind of leaning on this multi-stakeholder process to figure out a way to create some policies around stopping uh, the proliferation of these botnets. Right. And, uh, you know, the biggest risk of, the, of these botnets is less computers, right? Because you brought up Mirai. Just so it's all of these Internet of Things devices. So when people talk about Internet of Things security, the big risk is, you know, they're insecure devices, they're DVRs. What are you going to do with it? Well, I'm going to take control of it, put it in a botnet. So I'm not controlling one DVR that maybe I can stop you from watching Lord of the Rings with your family. Uh, and but have a half million of them, or however that many there were, and then launch an attack on Twitter, uh, as what happened 14, 15 months ago, and take Twitter offline uh, in the East Coast. I, I, think it was, I think it was only half the country. Uh, but the point being is now you can launch very significant attacks just by virtue of math, right? You, I mean, a DVR in and of itself, not very powerful. A few hundred thousand DVRs? That's a lot of comp- compute power, network power that's uh, at the hands of a miscreant, uh, and usually these devices are not that hard to compromise. So the real risk and, and proliferation of IoT uh, is certainly driving a lot of fears when it comes to botnets. Right, and the agency issued a draft, and they're moving forward on this. That draft mm-hmm. has come out, and they're calling for what they call botnet resilience across the entire ecosystem, mm-hmm. which, you know, it, w- it wouldn't be just flat-out regulation. It would really be a standards and practices type deal where standards would go out to industry and it would be flexible, appropriately timed, voluntary. So need to uh, wrap it up. Again, thank you. Uh, You've been listening to Greg Otto from our digital partner, cyberscoop.com. Thanks for being with us today, Greg. Thank you.
That brings us to the end of our show. Uh, to connect with us on our website, cybersecuritytodayradio.com, on Facebook and Twitter at CyberSec Radio. Uh, go ahead, reach out to us. We do like taking your questions and uh, answering them as part of our social media segment that we had uh, earlier on in the hour. Uh, and of course, if you want to get a podcast version of the show, uh, just look up Cybersecurity Today Radio with your favorite podcasting software. Until next week. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Enjoy the rest of your weekend.